This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for local poetry and discussion on Beyond Rhyme. Welcome to Beyond Rhyme. My name's Alan, and Camilla is here with us. That's very good. And we have our guest, John. Which is also good. Which is also good. (laughs) Thank you very much for inviting me back. This is a poetry show where we have guests on every month, and we get to listen and digest poetry from different sort of people, and we've been going a while now, Camilla. Mm, mm, Crazy, eh? Yeah. How long have we been going? There's always one more poet really keen to come onto the show, which yes. is awesome. Yeah. yeah, we have been really lucky yeah. with our guests. And we've just had Halloween. There's a few Grim Reapers about, a uh, few dressed-up people into Halloween gear. Mm. Did you get someone knocking on your door asking for... Oh, no. Money? They probably know from years gone by that I don't give them anything. <laughs> so should give them carrots. and before we start I'd just like to say a huge thanks to Scorpio Books who sponsor our show Uh, they have two shops now uh, one in the BNZ Centre on Hereford Street if you just walk up the mall there and turn right you'll see Scorpio Books and they've got the younger children's bookshop right next to it so there's plenty of browsing to be done and um, there's a good poetry section. It's probably the best poetry section in Christchurch or Canterbury. And there's a large variety of different poets writing at the moment who have books in there for sale. So go on and have a browse. Shout yourself a treat. Scorpio Books. John, I'm going to get stuck right into it. This journal of yours. Tell us about your handwritten journal because there's not many of these around. It's nice, isn't it? So I, I get these made for me, actually. I mean, they're very simple, just a soft black mm-hmm. card thing. But I, got, I like this brown, it's really kind of wrapping paper. Mm-hmm. So, and I write in it. Um, I chose this size, it's an A5 paper, and I chose this size because it stopped me thinking I was writing poems all the time. I used to work in twice-size books, you know, exercise books. And I realized I was already thinking about how long the line is, the shape of the poem and stuff like that. Whereas this, it doesn't allow me actually to write anything other than skinny poems or poems that just get scrawled around. Mm. So do you write notes on the poems or the poetry itself? Both. Both, Both. I've just opened at random here. So uh, here's a poem. I think I, I, I read a poem. This is not a poem. It's notes. I read a poem about my granddaughter, Martha, and I noted this down recently. Yes, Martha was here this week. She gave me my, she gave my guitar tune as a tweak. Um, you know, it's just doggerel, but uh, <laughs> I write stuff down, yeah? A white dove stands alone on the mudflat like the Holy Spirit in a parking lot. Wow. So I kind of write things in here, yeah? So and how many journals would you have? Are they all stored at home or you throw them out or...? I've got poems, I've got journals from when I was 18 forward. Wow. And um, I, 
My method is probably different. I think it was probably a journal which I kept what was like a diary in which poems appeared. Mm -hmm. And now I'm exclusively really, because we have these things, I write autobiography and stuff on online or mm -hmm. on, on my iPad. Um, I, I just uh, exclusively use these. For, for, and so I go through two or three of these a year, I suppose. Wow. What are they, 50 pages long? Mm -hmm. uh, most, of it sh most of it is to be forgotten. And I'm not going to show you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, that's the editing process. It's so important, isn't it? Yeah. I sometimes hear people reading poems that they've actually, I've, I've watched them actually still writing it just before they get up and read, you know. Yes. And I think this is great. I mean, young kids especially do this, and it's great. They're just generating that. Some of them are just responding to what they're hearing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. writing a poem at the same time. But... The older I've got, the more the craft has actually become important yes. to actually make an object. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it takes me quite a while. I sometimes regret letting poems go into publication because immediately afterwards I think, oh, I wish I'd left that line out. <laughs> I, I actually, I'm going to read a poem which, in which I've put a couple of extra lines, but I've already sent it to an editor and I have to plead the cause. You know? Yeah, I think, uh, um, uh, I, think I once saw uh, a comment by Mick Jagger saying that the artist sometimes can get so involved in this editing or the retouching process, yeah. and sometimes they just need to make the call and say, we need to let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Absolutely. <laughs> and sometimes a poem just happens. Probably one of my best poems was written in 10 minutes before I went to school one day, and it was perfect. Mm -hmm. And it got well paid for by Metro magazine wow. and it got into a book and it oh, got fantastic. stolen when it was put as a poem on buses. <gasps> so Not good. I was very proud of that, but I didn't leave yeah. my day job just because I got $200 for a poem. <laughs> <in the next>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other end of the scale, I think there's Leonard Cohen, who, when he talked, and I, who I admire enormously, um, uh, who, when he was talking about the the, the song Hallelujah, which is probably his most famous mm, pop, yeah. pop song, which is in the original just four verses. I think then he expanded it to about seven, six or seven. But um, he wrote about 80-something verses for that, that, that song. And when he was asked, oh, do you discard them at an early stage? He said, I take them as far as they can possibly go to the limits of my ability. And then I decide whether they make it or not. He said, I, I owe that to the spirit of the words. Mm -hmm. I kind of admire that craft, you know, to actually care so much that you're going to write it as well as you can, even mm -hmm. if they then put it aside and never look at it again. Mm. You know? I so think that... Somewhere between those two. It's, it kind of helps, you know, being involved, even though... You're not publishing it, but it's still part of you becoming an artist, you becoming a poet, you know, that exercise, you write, 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 yeah. and then you decide, okay, this is the essence of what I want to yeah. share exactly. and deliver. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I play music. You don't just get up without, well, some people sound as though they do, get up with a guitar and just thrash away. You actually practice. Mm. Yeah? I have artist friends. They actually do studies. Is it electric guitar or acoustic? No. Oh, I did do an electric guitar thing way back in the folk centre days. Mm -hmm. I was probably the first play person to play an electric guitar in a folk centre <laughs> in Christchurch. 
with a huge amount of feedback on a Jethro Tull song. Which Good made, feedback? Uh, the president of the folk club went into the back room and slammed the door. So I thought that was, <laughs> so I thought that was my Bob Dylan moment. Nice, <laughs> uh, nice. Um, but no, guitar, lute and oud mm-hmm. is acoustic instruments of what, mm-hmm. I, what I do. Before we go on, just like to mention that John is a published poet. What publishing house published your books? Oh, it's a variety. I brought a couple along here. One is one of the more recent ones. Uh, uh, I think I told you I'd been in Australia for 15 years. Yes. So one of them is a book I had, the only book I had published in Australia, which sank without trace because the publisher had a a major physical breakdown and and didn't distribute it. Um, I think it's a good book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, The other one, A Place to Return to, was first published when I came back to New Zealand. And Roger Hicken of Cold Hub Press has published two of my books. Mm. Um, Previously, um, my first book would have been published by Quentin uh, of um, Hazard Press who's publishing again, making beautiful books. And uh, Sudden Valley Press, David Gregory and John O'Connor published two, but way back in the 90s, that was another life. Mm. You, you, you try to find somebody who's gonna do it as close to your intention and who is enthusiastic and most of all, that they have a distribution network. Yes. Because it's easy to get published, you can make a book. Camilla and I were told that um, poetry books are, if you get published, it's quite an achievement with poetry. Yeah. Because it's not a high selling volume. If you sell 100, you would be lucky. Yes. If you're famous, uh, 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 Bill Mannheim might sell a couple of thousand. Certainly, Honey Tuferi, who is perhaps one of our most popular poets, could easily sell thousands of books. But mostly they sit in a box under your bed to tell you the truth (laughs) (laughs) and you give them away on occasions like this Um, but you know you don't write well personally I I don't write in order to get published I I like it I like it for the poem's sake I I have a certain amount of egotism that enjoys seeing myself in print Um, but you'd like someone to read the poem if it's, a, if it's a good poem, you'd like someone to read it. And so when somebody contacts you and said, love that poem, could you read such and such? Then, of course, that that feels great. I feel happy for the poem. Mm. Have you done Definitely. readings? Have you, have, have you done readings of your poetry? I read quite a lot. So there's two poetry scenes here in Christchurch that are two, two major ones. Catalyst has been running for, what, about 19 years every month? And so I've been frequenting them, those readings, every month for two or three years. I found it was a really good place, a very lively scene. It's a very, it was a very good place to cultivate the performing side of poetry. And also, I had to let my hair down and go a bit crazy every now and then. Um, the Poets Collective, the Canterbury Poets Collective, I've just retired from the committee of that, organises a season of readings every year. They have always brought poets from elsewhere in New Zealand as featured poets. There's always three featured poets. At least one is from somewhere, a well-known poet. And um, they also have an open mic section. Uh, So I've been a fairly frequent 
read it there both uh, several times as a featured poet and at other times just standing up in the open mic to That's wonderful. try my hand like everyone else, you know, wow. try out a new poem. It's really interesting when you read aloud and you've got the audience and it might fall flat, that may be about you, it might be about the audience, it might be about the conditions of the time. Um, but you can be reading and suddenly think, that line's all wrong. <laughs> but, you know, when you're in the performance, I think musicians must feel that sometimes too. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sort of doing something, you think, oh, I have to go back and rephrase that, that's completely <laughs> wrong. But fortunately, most people in the audience will just say, because they're hearing it the first time, they'll just say, oh, that's, a, that's cool. But in the reading group that I sit in, they, they uh, we give each other quite a hard time. Yeah. We talked about that last time. We'd love to carry on this after a break. Now, fingers crossed, Camilla's got some music. I do. Oh, yay! I'm going to start with um, one by R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and aeroplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid.
It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. A big welcome back to Beyond Rome. We're a poetry show. Camilla and I host a, a guest every month, and it's good to have listeners listening to the show. We know you're out there. Um, just relax with your coffee or something a bit richer or a bit stronger than a coffee, perhaps, uh, being a Saturday night. But, John, could could you read us a poem now that we've had a discussion? Yeah, OK. Um, so I just, this morning... Um, received news that a poem I'd written was published on the COVID, Love in the Time of COVID website. Oh, Michelle Elvey and Whitty Himaira set it up. And so it's an online literary site. It's wow. very, very interesting. Could you please repeat that? So what's the, what's the Love word? in the Time of COVID. Love in the Time of COVID. Yes, yeah, it's a good I'm title. Yeah, that's mm. a, It's a take on a very famous Colombian mm. novelist, of course, who wrote Love in the Time of Cholera. Oh, my, see, my claro, claro, see. Yeah. So, so I've, this this is interesting, I think, because the, both these poems are a little bit political, because I'm a bit concerned about how the world is. I also have a very close friendship with a, a painter whose paintings about refugees, especially Middle Eastern refugees, have affected me deeply. So this poem is called "A Woman Like Syria." She wears her country like a scar. If you look closely, you can see the war is still going on. Her hair blazes with exploding cluster bombs. The side of her neck has been mapped by chemical agents. The city of Aleppo falls about her ears and refugees spilled from boats are drowning in her eyes. A little child, not hers, shelters in the folds of her dress with huge eyes plunging towards tomorrow. She stoops to gather up the child who from now on is hers, bears him in a worldwide web embrace. When she steps ashore, she is alone. The whole world is watching only the Queen and Ukraine, or else flying away somewhere. Everything in the West is hurrying towards itself again. When she steps ashore, it is dawn. When she steps ashore, she has become everyone. Very powerful. Very powerful. Very, very current and beautiful. Yeah. The really, I can imagine, like, as he was reading, reading each line could be a photograph. You know, you just imagine, like, a cinematic image of it. It's yeah. interesting because I do take photos. Mm. And I think some of the poems, we, uh, when I read last time, um, I think very much in terms of a progression of images, very mm. simple. Some of the poems are very complex, but I 
don't read those publicly so much. They're more to be read on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a kind, it's a kind of um, narration, like documentary, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And I'm influenced quite a lot by film and the way that film brings various images together. Mm. Yeah. Could I read another related one? And then please, we can talk please, about yes. please, yes. So it's just because of my friend's paintings, it's a little bit of a theme for me at the moment. Mm-hmm. This one's called Waking After Aleppo. The vessel she stands in is fashioned from the storm rack of a country. Its falling mast is a wooden cross so much older than religion. With a great sigh of surf, like the last breath expiring from the world, the boat runs aground, its keel grinding on shoals of ancestral burns. She has travelled towards me through my nights, and I can no longer turn away. She is here. She is here looking out towards the vanishing horizon, clothed in a cascade of sorrow, clothed in samite threaded with grief and ashes. She holds a child. She holds a child. She holds the child out towards me. Strong, isn't it? Yeah, quite taken by that. Mm. So, do, do you think these figures are symbolism? Interesting, in conversation with Annette, the artist, um, I realised that this, uh, I, I never had an, a religious upbringing, but the image of mother and child is really strong in my poems. Yes. Last time I read Flight from Bombay, I wrote that in 1996, and there a mother is suckling her, holds the child to her breast in the shade of a truck. And I find there are other poems I have where a refugee or a migrant or someone who has um, suffered something is sheltering a child. I mean, it's, a, mm. it's a kind of archetype, isn't it? Um, so it does come up a lot. You could call it a symbol or you can just say it's a haunting archetypal image mm. in my mind. and. When I see, you talk to photos, when I see the photograph of uh, Dorothea Langer's migrant woman, it's from the 30s in the Dust Bowl of America in the Depression, and this woman is sitting there looking anxious, troubled, and her two children are leaning against her shoulder, but their faces are turned away. It's a very famous photo. I must have seen it when I was quite young, and it's really stuck with me. Mm. And being a privileged person, I find that uh, these these images get really under my skin, and then I have to do something. Have you ever lived in any of those um, or near some of those places that have this kind of conflict, or that, or where you could actually see the refugees and yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've mm. lived in Australia. You've got atrocious conditions in Australia, both for migrants and for indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And I learned sitting with indigenous peoples quite a lot about their their world. Uh, the poem Flight from Bombay was in fact of, of, during a visit in India. Mm-hmm. I've been in Iran. Um, I've been in America. I named that as another troublesome country uh, where poverty is extreme mm-hmm. outside the cities or even in the cities. 
um, you know, people are, you know, we have this, this, this problem in New Zealand too. There are people who simply are not able to live well. Mm, mm. Um, I say I'm not religious, but I think when it says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, I think that's the birthright of every human being. Um, and we're failing enormously. We could feed everybody in the world, but we choose not to for political and commercial reasons. Mm. Mm. But we did this last time. We started to talk about everything except the poetry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, that's, but that's what it happens. Like, and it's just a natural flow. You know, it's interesting to see what brings you to those words. You know, what kind of personal experience, and that's what we like to discover. Yes. You know, when yes. we sit here, and we we not just allow you you know we invite you we want you to share Thank you know you, anything that is related to your to your to your history yeah. because that's what we want it is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i think the reality though is that um writing poetry about baking bagels i could do one of those couldn't <laughs> i I, ba i bake bagels you um, could and, but, and yeah but the world condition is quite a lot different from that so mm, i'm always mm. saying to my children for instance never forget that you are privileged mm, mm. Uh, and that most of the world is not mm, mm, mm. Um, and but, i care about that and i mm. i make some personal decisions regarding that but, but mostly don't be, I'm but don't be, do not be sorry to interrupt do mm. not um be how do you say it? ah don't don't feel guilty for writing the bagel ones because <laughs> the, the poor and underprivileged will see the bagel poem and somehow they're gonna they're not gonna look at that and say oh my gosh I'm just writing the title i love you. this I love this. It's something that is simple. It's about a bagel, but somehow they will be able to relate to that. There's the title. <laughs> <laughs> so could you What was it? What was the word? Bacon bagels. Aha. Uh, so, you know, everyone, I think I said earlier, so everyone learned something in lockdown. I learned how to bake um, sourdough bagels. Beautiful. And several friends Beautiful. who are Jewish friends from New York say they're good. So, oh, look at that. They must uh, be. So just as an example to encourage our listeners to send poetry to places to you you had the previous poem on a web page. Could you tell us about that? How you yeah. constructed so, that? So this thing of getting published, it's um it's always difficult, but you you just simply Google poetry publications or po 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 poetry submissions in New Zealand. And you'll find a list of hard of magazines like the local Takahe. Um, and then you'll find various online sites. You can find magazines all over the world that you can send poems to. Probably don't start with um, Poetry Chicago, which is perhaps one of the most noted magazines in the world. Yes. Um, but you find you try to find something that feels in your league. Yeah, I mean, we all have ambitions to become famous, but probably you look for some really nice, small, little, modest magazine that where everybody's working voluntarily, and you send your poems there. Now, once upon a time, we used to print those out and put them in an envelope. You know, everything's done electronically now. It's so much easier to submit poems. Some of the sites uh, are online sites. So the one I mentioned, Love and the Time of... 
um, COVID. I keep wanting to say cholera. <laughs> cholera. Love is the it, time is of it Sarawak or is it, who is it by? Marquez Gatha. Marquez. The Marquez. Garcia Marquez. Marquez. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Sí. Yes, a great book. Um, so it's a fantastic title, isn't it, for mm, a pandemic? Mm. Um, the idea was to actually simply do it for a year or so and make an anthology, but they've continued it. So, mm-hmm. so you submit, you know, you just look it up, you send three or four poems, they'll either accept it or not. That's just how it is. Most people write a really nice rejection letter if they oh. reject it. <laughs> the, aren't they the worst <coughs> when they're nice? You know, oh, if well, in the nice case of Michelle, she genuinely is a wonderful person. We'll talk uh, more about this yeah. um, when we come back. Uh, we're going to take another break, and Kimmel has got some more music for us. I do. I have Savoy Truffle. big welcome back to Beyond Rhyme. We have a guest today, John. He's been sharing his poetry and his 
parts of his life with us, which we really appreciate because that's how we get to know how Palm is formed. I thought before we get started, I'd just ask you the biggest question you've probably been asked in a while. Uh, what do you think, what role do you think poetry has in the modern age? You do ask these big questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is really interesting that young, is it Alicia Gorman, read at Biden's inauguration? Not sure. A young perform- young, oh, really? Young black American wow. performance poet. Um, uh, England, of course, has always had its sort of tradition of the poet laureate who was supposed to write obsequious poems to the Queen, etc. Um, we have poets laureate who are free to write as they please. Yes. And that's, that's a formal position of acknowledgement of the significance of poetry. Um, I think it's when we go to countries like yours, Camilla, to Colombia, to um, to Chile, mm. where uh, where people say we need poems the same way as we need bread, is that po- poetry there is a very powerful voice for social conditions, Thanks for, for the mm. indignation about um, circumstances. Yes. Mm. And I think we've got a lot to be angry about, and poetry is not a bad way of doing it. Yeah. Aren't we the first to be imprisoned in a, in some countries, poets? Oh, I think so. I, so Amnesty International, which I belong to, you know, is an organisation that works for the the um, release of poets in prison. Um, I think I've got one here. Let me see. I've got a poem by him, actually. Let's let's have somebody else. Um, so let me take a moment. This is by. Um, Aaron Atabek, who is um, a Kazakhstani poet who died recently, but he spent some 15 years in prison because he wrote poetry. My throat, unable to speak, will die for the sounds of my homeland. My ancestors' patter will vanish like water into sand. I am a storyteller of immortality in Semitic and Etruscan tongues. I am the dust of Turkic dialects writing in Russian. Many lives, twisted fates are lost inside me, mourning. And I myself am a naked tangle of nerves pulsing with verses. Mm. Mm. Pulsing with verses, that's that's really nice. It's angry and defiant, isn't it? You know, Uh, it's like the the Russian poet Mandelstam who died in a camp in Siberia. He, he wrote a poem at some stage, you can do this, you can do that, but still my tongue will speak. You know? So why do you think we're such a threat to governments? Maybe it's truth. Yes. Uh, saying it like it is. I mean, even Plato, two and a half thousand years ago, suggested the poets be exiled because of their yes. uh, you know, undue influence on people. And I suppose that you know, I grew up in that protest movement of songs in the 1960s, which was, you know, bardic, which was poetic. You know, the poets of America were defying the draft, uh, very notable poets speaking against Vietnam. Um, and it was a big movement. It was a huge movement. They actually led, you know, alongside Martin Luther King, they, they sort of led the whole push towards civil rights. Poets, um, politicians don't like it. One, I don't think they understand what's being said. 
Yeah, because they're thick. Because they're You're thick. probably right. Because You're probably right. Because they're thick and they're mm-hmm. literal, mm-hmm. but they feel they're being got at. I mean, this poem by Aaron Atterbeck, I mean, the leader of the country would be incensed because he would say, what's this about? Nobody dares to write like this. Yes. It's not in our country. It's very threatening, isn't it? Yeah. Very threatening. Yeah. 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 Thanks yeah, for answering those questions, because they are pretty short questions I asked you, but you've gone, you've given some thorough responses, so I appreciate that. Why write poetry in New Zealand then? You know, we were supposed to be happy, aren't we? We were supposed to be comfortable. Comfortable. And we we are as divided as anybody else in the world. Mm. And we have enormous problems of inequity. I think it's sometimes it's the, the, the words are the last line of defence. The last defiance, because you know, physical violence is not really a good thing. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't work very well for anybody. Um, but you can shake your fist with words. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and that's some... that's more powerful at times, more dangerous to the authorities. Yeah. And we remember the poets who do that. Mm. Mm. There's a little poem, so while we're on the subject of other people, yes. there's a little poem by a poet I admire enormously, Wasan Shiru. She's a, um, a refugee, I think, originally from Somalia via Kenya, lives in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's quite famous. And this is just from a part of one of her poems. Uh, Last night I took down the big atlas and opened it upon my knee at the world map, and I said, where does it hurt? And it answered, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. True. Now, yeah. She's there to come through the refugee camps, so you mm. have to respect her words, don't you? Mm. Um, but mm. this is what we feel at the moment. When I was a kid, we knew about the nuclear bomb and we knew about Vietnam. But on the whole, we led a very naive life. Uh, these days, social media and the world doesn't let us lead a naive life. It's in our faces all the time, isn't it? The injustice of the world. Um, I had I had like three questions lined up and then I got lost. Right. Um, when you were talking about, what was it? You were talking about like being aware. Oh no, no. When you when you were uh, younger, that you used to do the protests and everything. What I was going to ask is, was there any point where you thought? Am I doing, like, am I, is this worth it? You know, am I doing something good? Is this worth it? I think there are times when you despair, but it was But the protest against the Springbok rugby team playing in New Zealand, a racially selected team, those protests were effective in changing things. Oh, okay. That's good. And so in 1982, we had these big protests Mm-hmm. When later the, the leaders who had been arrested were pardoned, they refused to accept the pardon because what they'd done was good. They believed their disruption was necessary and good. Um, the degree to which that actually helped Mandela in South Africa, I don't know, but they said so. And they knew that New Zealand public had become aware of the issues. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, we protested against the bomb every Friday night. 10,000 people marched against Vietnam and Christchurch. You don't see much like that anymore. Wow. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Oh, I think we're full of armchair warriors whose 
fill in petitions online and feel they're doing something. But in those days, that's what you, all you could do was take to the streets. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time that happened to any number would have been the invasion of Iraq, when thousands all around the world, many thousands, protested. Does it change anything? I actually don't know. I think that I'm looking at some of the protests happening in New Zealand at the moment and thinking that um, the kind of protest, for instance, blocking roads for the sake of public transport, you probably put off as many people as you win. Yeah? It's mm. really difficult in this day of claiming personal rights about everything and the so-called freedom to do whatever you like. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether that kind of protest actually works, but I still do it. More quietly, but I still do it. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. will write on behalf of Amnesty and International to world leaders about the people in their prisons. And the other thing I was going to ask is like, so we were discussing previously, like um, how polarizing some situations can be. Um, how how do you think that we we make this decision, like say, like how do you say aspas quotation entre aspas? Sorry, I had to forget about it. Uh, like, how do you think that we pick the right side is it based on our on our experience like from a younger age or is it based on um things that we learn to understand as we get older is it something that we grow up and you say no i know that this is the right thing to do or is it something that we grow and we start to understand and we research and we think oh maybe that wasn't and yeah Oh, another of those hard questions. <laughs> I, no, I genuinely just want to understand yeah, how. Look, I don't, I can't, I can't give, I'm, I'm just me. Fair but enough, yeah. If I look at a long life, which it is quite long, I think my values were shaped very much by my early experiences. Mm-hmm. I think values are important and they're embedded deep. Yes. And I think sometimes something called breakdown or illness is a time when our values go right, go on riot inside us and protest about our behavior. Mm. It's called conscience. I which means love with, with this, knowledge. You know? I never heard of this uh, phenomenon before, but like it's when breakdown is when our values go against our behavior. Maybe. It is yeah. certainly sometimes. That's, I certainly know that's true in my own that life. That is very interesting. Where, I, mm. where things happened to me, even a physical accident happened to me to stop me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and sit me back on my backside and say, Wow, I've got to think differently about about this. Mm. And so I think, for me, I can only say I've returned again and again to some common values I've had. Mm-hmm. I think when I was writing some autobiography, I was looking back to about the time when I was 18, and I saw this rebellious person who got kicked out of school and uh, mm-hmm. a couple of times and got suspended from teacher's college. And You did. Yeah, yeah, I was a bit rebellious, mm-hmm. a bit bohemian, um, uh, a bit of a maybe a beat poet rather than a hippie. Um, What's the difference between the two? Oh, 
No, that takes us too far. <laughs> <laughs> part of the time. We can skip. We can skip the next song part and just t- carry part on. Part of the time. Yeah. Part, of, part of the time thing. The Beats really appeared in America mm-hmm. in the late 1950s mm-hmm. as a first wave of counterculture, and America and the hippies arrived somewhat later. Um, the Beats didn't, I think, believe in love as a solution. They were beat. They were down. So they're quite pessimistic in some ways. Oh, okay. Uh, I, but um, along came the hippies. I can remember that. You know, all we had to do was love one another. Peace, love, and harmony. <laughs> uh, we're not doing too well with that, it seems, as a project. <laughs> um, got completely waylaid by drugs. Mm. Uh, and in the end, do know that love means something. So I think those are values. You know, when mm-hmm. you say, oh, like I've refused to hate. That's a decision I've made. I refuse to hate. Same. And that's, those are values. Yes. And I can't sleep well without actually doing that. I lie awake at night worrying about something I said. So I need to obey that voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, I just call it the voice of conscience. It's an inner voice that's whispering all the time, mm-hmm. doing a commentary on our lives and behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it worthwhile noticing, and poetry helps me notice Mm. definitely oh absolutely yeah Yeah. poetry it's it's such a a bridge isn't it for everything that's happening around and the way you understand it I suppose my primary reason for writing poetry in the beginning around that 18 year old stage was trying to understand things like the death of my sister like the death of my best friend and that none of the conventions gave me answers that were adequate, not the church, mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. not science, not, not atheism, not materialism. Nothing gave answers that mm. were suitable. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing poetry. Poetry is what you do when nothing else makes sense. Mm. And did you read a lot to try to, to find oh, yes. people that, that could explain that thing to oh, you? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, so, of course, there's the, the great poets of the 20th century especially even going back to the Romantic poets, they were in revolution mm-hmm. against their times, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of it is some 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 of the ones some of my reading would be for solace, just to feel calm, to feel as though I could belong. Mm-hmm. And what other, people do with TV these days and Netflix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the other part is to actually uh, challenge oneself. We finished last time, I think I said something like uh, conflict is the default mode yes. mm. of the present time and that we have to learn. So it comes right to the back, background of your question, I think. We have to learn to stand in conflict, recognizing that people are very different. And if we were to continue the conversation we started with, for instance, Camilla, we would need to sit down and start to share backgrounds, why you have your view, why I have my view, mm-hmm. because we probably are interested to do that mm. we'd have an interesting conversation absolutely not enough of that happens no people take no. a position and they shout at each other especially on facebook yeah yeah and i think <laughs> the the point that everybody seems to be missing is that we all have so much in common because we are from the same you know there's a say farinha do mesmo saco we are like we're flour from the same bag no, that's, great. <laughs> <laughs> we that's great we are yeah. we are we are all you know, if, you, if I pinch yes. you, we'll say, ouch. Yes. You know, we're all the same. Yeah, we're you know all that, the same. You know that famous photo of a row of skeletons and one's called black, one's called white, <laughs> one's homosexual, one's this, one's that. 
I know. skeletons yeah. look identical. I know. It's just I know. sort of some stuff that pads us out. We are, yeah. And I think we need to find some of those common origins. Yes. You know, and the pr- present state of the world tells us we're all in this together. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Absolutely. Know. Do you have another piece of work for us before we finish the show? Better, hey? We've talked about love poems. <laughs> Let's have a love poem. I like the title of this book. Balance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as background to this sometimes there is a personal story in this particular case my late wife died well, over 10 years ago now and I was not able to write at all at some point somebody said to me perhaps you're trying to write too perfect a poem after all she was lovely and so I thought that's interesting And then this do you poem, think she was right? yeah and then this poem happened, and I think it goes through an interesting journey. So here we go. It's called You Elsewhere. The beach wind shifts attention to those things that matter. Sand, of course, and scraps of seaweed entwined in fishing line. The tattered hem of lace snagging upon stone and driftwood. And the cries of girls torn from this page and cast away. Now I've returned these places that have known me, tasting presence and your absence always, listening to that conversation looping through these empty spaces beyond the surf, silence that not even the easterly disturbs. And for a moment, everything is still, and in this moment, we are words, longing to be shaped upon each other's lips. You mentioned the easterly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, can, I can understand that. I live in Brighton, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the reason I think the poem works is that it throws itself away halfway through, yeah? So it starts as a typical nature poem, mm. and it's sort of in the cries of girls torn from this page and cast away. We have people who say, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. You don't intrude into the poem, you know? And then it goes to the, this inwardness and this sense of, Absence is an empty space, but in that empty space, one senses some kind of presence if you just stay with it for a year, two years, three years. And then it, like a good poem can, I'm not saying it's a good poem, but like a good poem can, it just trumps it by going somewhere else. We are words longing to be shaped upon each other's lips. We are. But completely illogical. (laughs) She's dead. Um, Could you even be able to read that again? Do we have time to read that again? Oh, cool. I always like reading another poem again. Thank you. Uh, so it was actually the first poem in this book, which mm-hmm. was the first book I wrote when I arrived back to New Zealand. And so it was the first poem of a whole new phase of writing. You elsewhere. The beach wind shifts attention to those things that matter Sand, of course, and scraps of seaweed entwined and fishing line. The tattered hem of lace snagging upon stone and driftwood. And the cries of gulls torn from this page and cast away. Now I've returned to these places that have known me. Tasting presence and your absence always listening to that conversation looping through these empty spaces beyond the surf, 
silence that not even the easterly disturbs. And for a moment, everything is still. And in this moment, we are words, longing to be shaped upon each other's lips. Long. So beautiful. Mm. So beautiful. Oh, yes, thank, it is a good poem. Thank you. <laughs> I, I don't usually dare to say if it's a good poem. <laughs> but yes, thank you. The yes. beach is, in my mind, the beach is quite an exposed place. It's sort of... Yeah. Wind, sea, sand, yeah. grit. Um, it's just to come back to the things that matter, the poem says. Yeah. And that's where I go when I'm troubled. And I'm, I'm certainly troubled sometimes. What do I do? I go to the beach and I walk and I walk and I walk and then I hunker down in the dunes and watch the waves. And after 40 minutes or so, I'm calm. Mm -hmm. It's my therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nature. Nature's a, it's the best teacher, isn't it? It's a good yeah. one. Mm. So you're going to put out another book at some stage? I've got one with sitting with a publisher at the moment. I don't know what will happen because that's always chancy. Um, you know, they, they're inundated with people who think they should be published. Uh, you'd think that maybe I've got a record, I've had six books published, but I don't know. You never know until they tell you. Mm -hmm. And so, and the editor's word is, they're the boss, you know, so it'd be nice. It'd be really nice if that book came out. I feel it's my last book. You feel it's your last book because? Because I'm 72, because the last poem in it is called Before the Door, and it's based on a painting by Roger Hicken, uh, a black door and a white, white, whitewashed building. And written on it is Devant la porte d'un homme chante. Before the door, a man is singing, singing. But there's nobody in front of the door except oneself. So it's a bit of an end-of-life poem, it seems to me. Wow. So it would be quite useful if that was my last poem. Mm. Ah, I notice I finish every book with a poem that's about death. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it doesn't happen, I have to revise my you get You get to 100, and no, you have no, like, no. you have like, you know. No, no, Before we <laughs> finish, were your six books published in succession or did you have some rejection in between time uh, from publishers or <coughs> the first book was actually rejected initially because of funding problems and then accepted later on yeah so but otherwise none of the books have been rejected yeah um, It doesn't make me feel terribly confident about the next one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the, you know, I said, it's always just the next poem you, you can have. I think it's poem. because you're humble, because that you're <laughs> forecasting a possible defeat. I think, I think humility and being humble are great strengths for a person to have. Yeah. Leonard Cohen uh, talks about uh, death as the great defeat we all have to take part in. And he doesn't mean it in a negative way at all. That's why I like him so much, because he accepted so much the prospect of his own death and he died well. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really like we long to live, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we're going to die. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really worth knowing that. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's why we write, I think that's why we write poetry. It's sort of we do. putting a bit of a fence up around ourselves for a moment of supposed immortality, but it's rubbish. We die. Yes. We can live through poetry and through the beautiful things that we live here, I suppose. And on that note, on a beautiful note, thank you so much for, for sharing your work tonight. It's been great. Um, great conversation and a uh, good proof that, you know, opposites can definitely meet halfway. <laughs> we have <laughs> to. Yes, we have to. What happens is we sort of flash up into opposition and yes. then if we harden into that position, we've got conflict. Yes. But if we actually just simply say, oh, that's interesting. Let's explore <laughs> that space in between. <laughs> then life is good. Absolutely. So thank you very much, no, both of you. It's great, wasn't yeah. it, Alan? Is that the end of the show? It is the oh. end of the show. Oh, well, the the thank show. you very much, John. Thank you, thank Camilla. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, we're going to finish with Champagne Supernova by Oasis. And, um, yeah, and this was Beyond Rhyme for November. We'll see you in December. Take it away. Enjoy the music. We'll see you next time. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall Faster than a cannonball Where were you while we were getting high? Someday you will find me Champagne supernova in the sky Someday you will find me Carping in the landslide In a champagne supernova A champagne supernova in the sky